This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. A guest speaker is featured on this message. It really is a great joy for me to be here, uh, not only in this great state of Texas, but to be here at this church. Uh, there's a lot of things that I love about Texas. Uh, The thing, in fact, that I love most about Texas, though, and it's without exaggeration, are the Sovereign Grace churches uh, that we're in partnership with that are in this state. And so um, we, as a local church outside of Philadelphia, thank God for you. We pray for you. The saints there send their greetings uh, and their love to you. Um, What Craig said about him and this church making no investment in ours is actually not true at all. Um, It was just a couple of years ago that Craig came in and spoke at a conference that we had and then stayed and preached on a Sunday morning there as well. And from the time that I was a teenager... Um, desiring pastoral ministry. Uh, I have, at that point, it was before I'd met Craig, but it was listening to recordings uh, of his teaching, uh, of, I remember other recordings as well, of him uh, uh, debating theology professors and these sorts of things. Those things shaped me as a young man and as a sort of second generation leader in our uh, group of churches, our partnership. I'm very aware that I'm standing on the shoulders of those who have served much longer than I have. And so I thank God for this church. I thank God for, you, uh, for the leadership that you have here and for the joy of partnership that we have uh, together. This weekend, my wife and I have been so refreshed through your hospitality. Um, and so I want to thank you for that. Uh, the uh, Saints at Covenant Fellowship especially send their gratitude for taking care of our dear friends, uh, Steve and Rachel Gonzalez, who used to be members at our church and are now uh, here with you. Thank you for the love and the welcome that you've extended to them over these years. All right, let's turn to James chapter 1. <clears throat> James chapter 1. And our sermon text is going to be verses 12 through 18. I'm eager to share God's word with you. I've prayed for for you, for all of us this morning as we receive God's word, that it would do a powerful work in our hearts and in our lives. James 1, beginning in verse 12. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits 
of his creatures. May God bless the preaching of his word. I recall once reading something that was in fact quite brilliant on this theme of temptation. Uh, It doesn't come from uh, the commentaries or the scholars or the Puritans or anything like that. It comes from an author named Arnold Lobel. Uh, It's from his insightful and magisterial work called Frog and Toad Together. Anyone know Frog and Toad? Okay, yeah, good hands. All right, good. You're you're tracking with me. Um, You'll have to bear with me. I'm a lover of children's books. And in this particular story, Toad bakes some cookies. Uh, He says, these cookies smell very good, said Toad. He ate one. They taste even better, he said. Toad ran to Frog's house. Frog, Frog, cried Toad. Taste these cookies that I have made. Frog ate one of the cookies. These are the best cookies I have ever eaten, said Frog. Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another. You know, Toad, said Frog, with his mouth full, I think we should stop eating. We will soon be sick. You are right, said Toad. Let us eat one last cookie, then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one last cookie. There were many cookies left in the bowl. Frog, said Toad, let us eat one very last cookie, (laughs) then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. We must stop eating, exclamation point, cried Toad as he ate another. Yes, said Frog, reaching for a cookie. We need willpower. (laughs) What is willpower, asked Toad. Willpower is trying hard not to do something you really want to do, said Frog. You mean like trying hard not to eat all these cookies, asked Toad. Right, said Frog. And then Frog put the cookies in a box. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can open the box, said Toad. (laughs) That is true, said Frog. So Frog tied some string around the box. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. Frog got a ladder. He put a box high up on the shelf. There, said Frog, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can climb the ladder and take the box down from the shelf and cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. So Frog climbed up the ladder, took the box down from the shelf, cut the string, opened the box. Frog took the box outside. He shouted in a loud voice, hey, birds, here are cookies. Birds came from everywhere. They picked up all the cookies in their beaks and flew away. Now we have no more cookies to eat, said Toad sadly. Not even one. Yes, said Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. (laughs) You may keep it all, Frog, said Toad. I am going home now to bake a cake. (laughs) And that, uh, you know, this simple dialogue in a children's book is actually getting at something that is profound and deeply relevant for living the Christian life. And that is, how do we triumph over temptation? How do we triumph over temptation? Is the answer found in the removal of all temptation from our lives, as if that is somehow possible? Uh, Can we somehow feed all of our insubordinate desires to the birds? Is the answer found in more willpower? We need willpower, said Frog, as he reaches for another cookie. You know, there's a sense in which the whole world, everyone can relate to the reality of temptation, whether you're a Christian or not. But Christianity, the word of God, provides answers and wisdom and guidance that you find nowhere else. 
And so whatever temptations we face in life, what we will find is that the word of God speaks directly into this reality. In the book of James, earlier in chapter 1, James has already dealt with the difficulties of life that come from outside of us. He tells us in verse 2 that there will be trials of various kinds that come our way. And it is indeed true. We all face trials of many kinds, physical health and relational challenges, financial and economic strains, and many other kinds of suffering. And now, having dealt with outward trials, James is equipping us, God through James is equipping us, to deal with what is in fact a far greater and more dangerous trial, and that is the reality of inward trials. Uh, the inward trials of temptations. It is generally the case that for every outward trial we face, whatever those trials of many kinds are, we will generally respond to those by experiencing the inward trial of temptation. And because we all experience trials of many kinds every day, it is often the case that we are likewise tempted every day. For me, Life is full of temptations, and I'm sure this is your experience as well. From the moment that I wake up in the morning, I want to hit the snooze button again and again, which can so often be the temptation to laziness. I want to check my phone first thing in the morning uh, or get an early start on work. There's a temptation to neglect God and his word. I feel discouraged and burdened by the overwhelming number of things to do. And in that moment, there can be a temptation to self-reliance. The kids wake up and might immediately start arguing and making requests and demands. And there is the temptation to irritation that is right there with me. And I look in my closet and I think that I have nothing especially awesome to wear. Um, you know, one of these catalogs shows up with all this rugged gear on how to be a man of the woods. And I think, I don't have anything that, that is rugged and that I want. And you know what? The temptation to vanity, you know, is right there with us. Someone comes to mind who I feel has wronged me in some way. And I experience a temptation to uh, revenge, to in some way exact justice, to get right with them. I see a piece of mail informing me that my electric bill has increased 6%, the temptation to greed, the temptation to discontentment. And basically all of those examples are only covering like the first hour or two of any given day. And so without a doubt, as we go through the day, as we go through the week, as we go through the seasons of our lives, we will experience temptations of many kinds. The Christian life is like a spirit against the flesh game of dodgeball. And the flesh has like 50 people left and they are all gunning for your soul. And yet, even in the midst of that, we do not lose hope because we know as believers that the mighty spirit of Christ is at work within us. That God has not left us to ourselves, but that he has given us a power. He has given us the Holy Spirit himself to dwell within us, to fight and resist temptation. And not only this, verse 18 says that of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, referring to the miracle of regeneration. You have, believer, been born again by the power of God. You are not now what you once were. 
And through this reality, we now have a power to face the Christian life and to face every temptation that may come our way. I know for some of you, it may be that you find yourselves at a place today where you are ensnared by more serious temptations. You feel like in your life, coming off of this morning or this week, temptation has the upper hand. It has been beating you and bludgeoning you. And you are wearied perhaps by the seemingly endless temptations that come at you. And it may be that you are hopeless for change in a particular area of your life, a particular area where you desire to change or where you desire to grow. Brothers and sisters, here's what needs to be said today. Here's what we need to know from God's word. God is on a rescue mission here this morning. His grace is coming for us. He does not leave us to struggle alone against the temptations that come our way. And we know, according to his word of truth, that this one who holds us fast, this great and mighty sovereign Lord, is empowering us to stand fast in the midst of trial and temptation. Verse 12 this with hope in your hearts today. Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Now is the test that we stand. The day is coming when the crown of life will be yours. This crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So often the reason that we're distressed by temptation is because we love the Lord. You want your life to be pleasing and honoring to Him. That is an evidence of your love for God. And that very evidence of love for God is a sign that things will not always be the way they are now. The crown of life is coming. The end of sin and temptation is coming. We, together with all the people of God, will on that day, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, be saved to sin no more. And so we live every day here and now in light of that coming day and that coming reward, that coming crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. A few more struggles in life, a few more miles to go on this weary road, and then the crown of life will be yours. And so, brothers and sisters, we do not lose heart. Stand the test. Be of good cheer. Know that we have a champion in Christ. King Jesus is the one who died and rose to strengthen us in our weaknesses. In the book of Hebrews, it says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 15. And in Hebrews 2, verse 18, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he, Jesus Christ, is able to help those who are being tempted. That's us. You're being tempted? Know this today. Jesus Christ is your help in time of need. Now, today, helping you to triumph over temptation. According to this passage in the book of James, there are two things that we need to understand, two great truths, two realities 
that we must understand in order to triumph over temptation. The first is the nature of temptation, and the second is the character of God. So those will be our two points. First, the nature of temptation. And especially these verses focus on where does temptation come from and what does it lead to? What is the origin and the outcome of my temptation? This is verses 13 through 15. So the origin of temptation. Look at verse 13. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And then verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, this is important for us to understand because when temptation comes our way, we have a strong inclination to blame others for the reality of that temptation. That's what Adam did in the garden, you remember? It was the woman you gave to be with me. That's what Aaron did. There's that remarkable story in Exodus 32 when he sculpts the golden calf with a graving tool. He's like, I just threw the gold in the fire and then out came this calf. I don't know. You know, that sounds legit. Blaming others. We, we, we blame God. We blame other people. We blame Satan. We blame circumstances. And you see this. Uh, a husband blames his own lack of leadership in marriage on his wife's nagging and irresponsible uh, or unreasonable expectations. A mom may place the blame for her anger towards her children upon her children and their behavior. Or a young couple that's not yet married places uh, blame for their impurity on our culture's delayed approach to marriage. God says that the first step that we should take in the grip of temptation is to stop pointing the fingers at others and instead humble ourselves and admit that we are to blame, no one else. And we refuse to blame others. Each person is tempted by his own desires. There was a night, this was actually a few years ago, uh, when I was looking to get some time at home with my wife, Megan. And so after dinner, we put a movie on for the kids. I make some popcorn and I tell them uh, to leave us alone. We love you and we don't want to see you anymore tonight. And uh, so five minutes later, uh, my sweet Juliet, who was then three years old, <coughs> uh, comes to us and, and tells me that popcorn is all over the place. You know, a cute little voice, popcorn all over the place. And so I walked downstairs and went into the living room and it looked like, you know, an atomic popcorn bomb had detonated uh, in, in the room. And Juliet's popcorn was all over the sofa and the chair all over this carpeted floor. Agatha, our youngest, who was then one year old, is sitting by a big bowl of popcorn, just kind of massaging it all and, and tossing it around. All of the older kids are checked out. Uh, in that moment. I say, guys, what is going on? Look at this mess. And then I'm down on my hands and knees trying to pick the popcorn out of the, the sofa uh, and, the, and the carpet and telling them how ridiculous this is. And then Juliet's head in that moment somehow rams into my face. And what I say is, and I wrote it down so I'd remember, ow, Juliet, your big head hit me in the face. Go away. And, and she starts crying, my poor girl. What am I desiring? I'm desiring peace and quiet. Conversation with Megan. Not being interrupted. I didn't get it. Introduce temptation. 
temptation that in that moment of interacting with the kids gave birth to sin as I started to vent and declare rules that I knew I wouldn't be able to enforce. You guys probably won't be able to eat popcorn in this room anymore. You might, you guys won't be able to eat popcorn for the rest of your lives if this is what you're going to do. I was angry and so I stepped outside and went for a walk. I was viewing them as the problem when I needed to look at my own heart. And this is, this is the reality. Yes, external factors certainly play a role in temptation, but they're not the ultimate source of temptation. I can't say, if you guys wouldn't, then whatever. No, the origin is my own desire. And it's the case with all of us in our sin and temptation. Now, what about the outcome of temptation? Still under the nature of temptation, if that's the origin, our own hearts, and desires. What about the outcome of temptation? And here's what we need to go. This is, this is a, we need to understand this. This is a sober warning from our loving Father in heaven who cares for us and does not desire to see us walk the path of destruction and ruin. He tells us that our wrong desires set us on a path that leads to sin and death if they remain unchecked. And if we do not resist and fight against the reality of temptation. And so what we have, in fact, we saw in verse 12, there's that life, the crown of life. That life is now contrasted with death in verse 15. And this is the progression of temptation and sin. Verse 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there's a distinction there. Understand that between temptation and sin, the initial desire of temptation is not sin. Remember, Jesus, we're told, was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And so there are many Christians, faithful Christians, who experience temptations of many kind, and yet in the midst of those temptations, you're not giving into it. You are resisting it. You are fighting well, and it's pleasing to God. So don't mistake the reality of temptation in your life for the presence of sin. That distinction is essential. But temptation, when it is entertained, leads to sin, which in turn leads to death. Death being a life of enslavement to sin, a life of ruin that ultimately leads to eternal death. This is the outcome of sin. NPR had a story on slaughterhouses, talked about how to uh, kill cows with kindness. It was a fascinating uh, piece that they did. A scientist had learned through years of research how to track what scares or stresses livestock. Uh, The beef industry was interested in this, not simply for humanitarian purposes, but also because high stress levels in animals can release hormones that can diminish the quality of meat. I'm sure this is all common knowledge here in Texas, but this was news to me as I was there listening to this. This scientist said that the key to keeping cows relaxed is to remove anything unfamiliar. So don't yell at them. Uh, Don't use cattle prods. Just keep them content. Just keep them comfortable. And so new technology was then developed. Cows are not prodded off of the truck. They are calmly led. 
They go through a, a shoot that mimics a mother's touch by applying gentle pressure. There are no sudden turns. And it seems that all is normal. And it seems that all is well when a, a blunt surgical device strikes them between the eyes and they are done. In other words, the key is to keep them from seeing the end. And this is exactly how the flesh and Satan, the enemy of our souls, works in our lives. This is how temptation works. Understand this, temptation only gains an upper hand in our lives by concealing the end from us. The end, judgment and eternity and death and slavery to sin must be concealed, must be hidden from our eyes in order for temptation to have any power over you. The power of temptation is the satisfaction it promises. The flesh is constantly lying about what sin leads to. And... Some of you, there may be young people here in particular, teens, youth, who you think, oh, if I could just go do this sin, if I could just live this way, if I could just have a life like everyone else in this area, that would be more satisfying. That would bring me more pleasure. I would be more content in that. Why do we all at times think that way? It's because the flesh hides the end from us. And so we think, well, just once won't hurt. Or the flesh says, you've already given into that temptation hundreds of times. Why not do it again? That sin isn't going to ruin your life. You'll be forgiven later. Isn't there grace? So go ahead and sin. The flesh tells us that the outcome of giving into sin is not severe. Uh, wine and strong drink would never destroy anyone. There's no harm in enjoying that flirtatious relationship. Uh, your charitable giving this year more than compensates for that little oversight uh, in your income tax return. You can dwell on reoccurring daydreams of greed and sexual immorality and revenge, and it won't do any harm to let your mind wander a bit. These are the lies of the flesh. You see in verse 14 where it says that each one is lured and enticed by his own desire. That lured and enticed, that's fishing language. Caught by bait is how you could also translate it. And fishing is something that James himself would have been familiar with. I remember when I was, I have very little experience with fishing. I did it like once as a little boy. There was a pond. I didn't have any bait. Took a stick, tied a string onto it, put a hook on the other end, put it in the water, no bait on it. And a fish actually bit it. I didn't know what to do. I totally panicked. I pull it out. It's flopping around on the ground. And I'm like, you know, trying to take, and then I eventually get the hook off of it. I'm kicking this fish around to get it back into the, the pond. Well, James would have knew a bit more about fishing. I'm sure a lot of you do as well. A fishing hook is not desirable. Uh, A hook is unappealing. A hook is harmful. But, you know, a worm, a brightly colored fly, or whatever it is that fishermen use, will get the fish to bite. Sin, (laughs) sin doesn't come to us in life saying, I am a hook, take a bite. I will drag you away and destroy your life. Come and enjoy me. Come and live this way. No, that's not the way sin works, ever. We are lured and enticed 
by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, Thomas Brooks, he's a Puritan. He wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He says that one of Satan's main strategies, and I think he's absolutely right, one of Satan's main strategies to draw us into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. That's what Satan did in the Garden of Eden, and he's been doing it ever since. Take a bite. You will not surely die. See, the truth is there is no such thing as a sin that is ultimately fulfilling and satisfying. And if we saw sin for what it really is in all of its awfulness, it would be disgusting. It would have no appeal. If we could see its end, if we could see what it leads to, if we could see sin in the sight of God and for what it really is, it would have no appeal to any of us. Thomas Brooks in that same book, Precious Remedies, says this, and I think this is so insightful and was so helpful to me in fighting against temptation. He says that temptations to sin often come disguised as virtue. Um, so we could, there's particular sins we can give into, but in giving into them, we think that we are being virtuous. We think that we are taking the moral high road. We think that we are being good people. And so he said, you know, that's not pride that I'm giving into. That's conviction. That's passion for truth. Or that's not anger toward my kids. That's the, they need stern correction. And I'm going to give it to them. Or... That's not bitterness and self-righteousness. That's an appropriate sense of justice. And you would understand if you knew the wrong that was done. Or that's not covetousness. That's just a desire to enjoy God's good gifts. That's not drunkenness. That's just enjoying friendship, having some good times, enjoying good fellowship together. That's not lust. That's the aesthetic appreciation of the beauty of the human form. That's not greed. That's just good, shrewd business practice. That's not a critical spirit. I'm discerning. God has given me the gift of discernment. And all I'm doing is being discerned. You know, um, People in my life used to call me, uh, this was shortly after I was a Christian, uh, they called me the hawk because I had the spiritual gift of pointing out people's sin. Yeah, you didn't know that's even a spiritual gift. Um, but what I would do is, is bring correction so consistently in the name of discernment. And I thank God for people who could help speak into my life and understand, actually, this is a critical spirit. Actually, this is a failure of love. Or it may be that we think, okay, that's not sinful anxiety. That's a healthy concern and planning for the future. What Thomas Brooks in that book says is that we, uh, virtue, you know, uh, sin is painted with virtuous colors. It's a sobering picture. Sin, oh, painted with virtuous colors and therefore becomes desirable and defensible to our fallen hearts. And so the bait is presented, the hook is hidden, and we bite. You know, I, I read about this. There's an innocent-looking Australian plant. It's called the sundew. It's so attractive. It has these bright blossoms, but the leaves are, in fact, deadly. And the moisture on the leaves is sticky, so it traps any bug that touches it. And as they struggle to free themselves, the leaves close tightly around it and it just feeds on its victim. This is a picture of the way that sin ensnares us and leads to death. We know that we all deserve 
the death and judgment described here because of the reality of our sin. And it's why we must come back again and again to the work that Christ has done for us. The death that we've been spared from is a death that we deserve. But it is because Christ died that death in our place that we don't experience the judgment that our sins deserve. And not only that, God, as our Heavenly Father, gives us gracious warnings because he cares for us. And that's what verse 16 is. This appeal, this call, do not be deceived. You see that in verse 16? Do not be deceived. That's because... Even as Christians, yes, I'm not now what I once was, but I'm still so easily deceived. And therefore, I need to hear God's word of truth reminding me not to be deceived of the nature of temptation, not to be deceived by the reality and nature of sin and its outcome, and especially not deceived concerning the character of God, which is where verse 16 into 17 leads to. This is our last and shorter point, the character of God. We absolutely must, if we are to fight and resist temptation, have in our tool belt this category of an awareness of the character of God. If you fight temptation by focusing on sin and temptation alone, you will fail. You must step back and look up And consider the character of who God is and what he has done. And that's exactly what these verses in James do. In in verses 16 through 18. In fact, this is the point at which we are most inclined to be deceived. When temptation comes, when trials come. Is God good? Is God tempting me? Does God have it out for me? Is God punishing me? For those who are in the midst of a trial right now, do not be deceived. Your flesh is going to tell you that God is not good. Your flesh is going to lie to you. We already saw that in verse 13. We're inclined to not just blame for our sin, but blame God for our sin, that we would never put it that way. You put me in a situation, God, where anyone would sin. You haven't given me a spouse, God, so of course I can't be pure. Or, God, why did you make me this way? As if God created uh, our evil nature and our evil desires. Or we can blame God through misunderstandings about what it means that he is sovereign. In the midst of trials and temptations, understand this, Our greatest and most dangerous temptation is to think wrongly of God. To have hard thoughts about God. And so you're going through life, financial difficulty comes, and we question God's provision. Or the ungodly prosper, and we question God's justice. Or we experience the death of a loved one or suffering of someone whom we dearly love and we question God's care. We experience health challenges and we question God's plan in the midst of temptation. We so often are tempted to question his goodness. And so God wants us to, God wants us to understand his character. He wants us to avoid mistakes that impugn his righteous 
good, faithful character in the midst of temptation. He wants us to know that he never tempts us. Uh, He will, so this is verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Understand, God will test us for the purposes of growing our faith, but he will not tempt us from a desire to lead us into failure. God has already, uh, James has already described here the good purposes of God in our suffering and trials earlier in verses 2 through 4. The Lord is good. Hear this. Yes, trials come. Yes, temptations come. Never doubt the Lord is good. He is good in his character. He is good in all his ways. He is too good to be tempted by evil or to tempt us toward evil. Evil does not originate in God. God has no responsibility for our sin. So don't confuse our temptation with God's activity. Your heavenly father's intention. Oh, if we could but see his heart toward us, it would melt our own hearts. To see his love, to see his kindness. His intention in whatever you may currently be experiencing is not to lead you into sin. He cares for you. His his intention in our trials is to mature us by deepening our sense of dependence upon him and by leading us into a greater understanding and trust in his goodness. And this is what Charles Spurgeon means when he says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock ages. The waves of trial will not drown us. I am in Christ, and therefore the most that trials can do is throw me against the good and faithful one, the unchanging rock of ages. So it is for all who are in Christ. And God wants us to know, don't be deceived. What does verse 17 then say? And this is a tool in fighting temptation. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift in your life. He is the father of lights, verse 17, And his character, revealed in the cross of Christ, does not change. We know we can trust him because he gave his son for us. There's so much that does change in life. Our bodies, our circumstances, our lives are always changing. But no matter what you experience in life, What highs or lows, what changes, what sudden unexpected things are now happening in your life. However uncertain your future may be, there are things that are certain. The character of God is certain and unchanging. He is the faithful one who remains faithful however dark our road. He is the immutable, the unchanging God. And he reveals his character and his faithfulness, his unchanging ways, so that we today would say, there is so much that I don't understand, but this I do understand. My God is faithful. My God is for me. My God is with me. And my God is good. And the goodness of God combined with the unchanging character of God means that he is good toward me always. And verse 17 is really an invitation to consider the generosity of God. 
Have you received good gifts from his hand? Yes. Have you received perfect gifts from above? Yes. It is all from him. Take in this view of the generosity of God. So many blessings in your life that we must constantly call to mind as reminders of his character. He gives life. He gives breath and family and friends and music and sunshine and all that we enjoy. Gifts from his hand for which he is to be praised as a means of fighting temptation and the pinnacle of God's goodness. And this is the power to triumph over temptation is described in verse 18. Don't miss the glory of verse 18. This is speaking of God, of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth, the word of truth being the gospel of Jesus Christ. We who are Christians, we who have turned from our sin and put our faith in Christ, have been brought forth by the word of truth. Now that may not describe everyone here. If you are not a Christian, you are missing the main reality that is needed to fight temptation. And God invites you to turn from your sin and to put your faith in Christ today. You don't need, today can be the day that you are, by the power of God, brought forth by the word of truth. Because this word of truth is power and this word of truth is life. We, as believers, have been brought forth by the word of truth of his own will, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so the word of truth, the gospel, take it in. This is the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. He gave his own son to die as a substitute. His son rose victorious over sin and death and reigns as heaven's champion. He has given us his son, the word of truth. He's brought us forth by this word. He has secured our salvation. This is the miracle of regeneration. And this new birth is not your doing. I didn't bring myself forth. It happened because God acted. God did it. God is at work in us. And this reality that it is of his own will according to verse 18, reminds us that, that he has done this and that it is sealed. You, you have been regenerated by the power of God and no sin and temptation can reverse the glorious miracle of regeneration. And this reality of the new birth reminds us of the real power that we have over temptation. If you are a Christian, this is yours. Power to obey, power to please our Father, power to respond to trials in a way that is not controlled by our own subjective feelings and emotions and the reality of sin and temptation, but that is controlled by a view of the faithfulness and the goodness and the character of God. So brothers and sisters, never doubt, never doubt the goodness of God. Oh, never doubt his goodness to you individually. Celebrate his goodness. Celebrate his faithfulness. Trials and temptations are sure to come in life, even later today. The answer is not to feed the cookies to the birds. The answer is not raw willpower. 
Do not be deceived. The origin of my temptation is the warped desires of my own heart. I need to see the outcome of temptation and sin for what it truly is. And above all, I must cling to the unchanging goodness of my God. He is the rock who will not move. He is the father of lights who shines upon me with kindness. He is the God who has given his son for me. And therefore, we will not question his character. We cannot, we must not question his character, but rather we will celebrate his unending, unfailing goodness lavished upon us with every good and perfect gift, giving us new life in Christ, giving us his spirit, giving us all the glories that come with this word of truth. May God enable us to triumph over temptation. Let's pray together. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.